The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Rob held up his gloved hand, hoping to block some of the wind that was stinging his eyes. The blizzard raging around him meant he couldn't even see his hand in front of his face. He also couldn't move his fingers. At 40 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, the mountain air had frozen the fabric of his gloves solid. Rob raised his hand to his face and breathed on it, trying to melt the frozen fabric. He kneeled back against the rock face, huddling up next to Doug. The other climber was in bad shape, curled up in a ball, too weak to even shiver. Rob knew Doug didn't have much time. The wind was pelting his face and body with ice. They would freeze to death before long. He fumbled with his radio at the sound of chatter. The men in the camp were assuring him that they were putting together a plan. The other mountain guides were gearing up right now to come get him. Rob couldn't help but laugh. He knew there was no chance he'd be rescued so long as the storm continued. They were just too far from the camp. Rob knew there was no one coming for him now. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Bill. Every Monday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first of two episodes on the Mount Everest disaster of 1996. Over the course of two days in May, a storm unexpectedly seized the famed mountain while a group of climbers were near the summit. By the time the storm had cleared, eight people had died. It was the deadliest incident in the mountain's history. This week, we'll follow the history of Everest, We'll discuss mankind's attempts to reach its summit and the boom in climbing tourism that may have contributed to the unsafe conditions on Everest in May of 1996. Next week, we'll cover the events of May 10th and 11th, 1996, and the tragic story of how eight people lost their lives 
in the unforgiving cold of the mountain. There are a number of ways that a blizzard can kill you. The fierce wind and cold air can rapidly bring on hypothermia and freeze you to death. Massive balls of hail can pummel your body, leaving you bloodied in the freezing snow. The impaired visibility that comes with a blizzard can make it impossible to see more than a few feet in front of you. In that kind of condition, it's all too easy to get hopelessly lost. The average temperature on Mount Everest is firmly below freezing, and at night, it can reach to as low as negative 60 degrees Celsius. Exposure to this kind of extreme cold can lead to severe frostbite in less than half an hour. The cold keeps Everest in a constantly frozen state. Slippery ice is rampant throughout the trail space. That, combined with the strong winds, can easily cause a mountaineer to slip and fall to their death. Now, imagine all of that, but at an elevation of over 29,000 feet, or over 8,800 meters, where the oxygen is so thin that your body literally dies with every breath. This is the day-to-day -day reality of Mount Everest. At 29,029 feet, the mountain is the tallest in the world. The extreme conditions that exist in the upper tiers of the mountain make it one of the deadliest environments on the planet. In the top section of Everest, the part that exists above 26,000 feet, the atmosphere contains only one-third of the oxygen that exists at sea level. Human bodies simply can't survive on that little oxygen. The only way to reach the summit is to use supplemental oxygen from a tank or to move quickly. Without sufficient oxygen, muscles begin to shut down. Blood flow slows. Every function begins to be impaired. Your brain and your body slowly die with every step that you take. Additionally, the tallest parts of the mountain nearly reach the lower layer of the stratosphere the part of Earth's atmosphere where most clouds form. That high up, a buildup of storm clouds can occur without warning. And the storm wouldn't be above you, it would be around you. The longer you stay close to the summit, the more you risk being caught in the storm. This was one of the key factors that led to the 1996 disaster. Combine a blizzard with the extreme cold, the strong winds, and the hazardous cliffs and crevices of the mountain, and you have an ideal setting for a natural disaster. And yet, despite all of this, hundreds of adventurers make the trek up Everest every year in the hopes of reaching the peak. That was the case in the spring of 1996, when two mountaineering groups adventure consultants and mountain madness set out to reach Everest's summit. Adventure consultants was led by 35-year-old New Zealander Rob Hall. He was assisted by fellow guides Mike Groom and Andy Harris. They led a team of eight clients with ages ranging from 34 to 56. This included Doug Hansen, a 46-year-old postal worker who had years of climbing experience but had never summited Everest. He'd attempted previously on Adventure Consultant's 1995 trek, but had to turn back due to exhaustion. 
47-year-old Yasuko Namba had climbed six of the seven summits, a range of noteworthy mountains that included Everest. She was making her run to complete number seven. John Krakauer was a technical climber and journalist who joined the group in order to write a story about overcrowding on Everest. There was also Beck Weathers, a 49-year-old pathologist from Texas. Weathers had significant climbing experience, but had never ascended past 8,000 meters. The Adventure Consultants Group also had eight Sherpas, Himalayan mountaineers who served as guides and support staff for climbing groups. With these eight Sherpas, the total group size was 19. The other main group climbing for the summit was Mountain Madness. This group was led by guides Neil Beidelman and Anatoly Bukrev. It consisted of nine clients ages 33 to 67 and eight Sherpas. Mountain Madness was also led by climber Scott Fisher, who was famous for climbing Everest in 1994 without the use of supplemental oxygen. These climbers assembled at the end of March 1996 at Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal. Though the range of experience varied, they had all summited other difficult-to-climb mountains in the past. They knew the journey ahead would be the toughest of their lives, but they felt ready to face the challenge. Tragically, Mother Nature would have other plans. Many of these climbers wouldn't return from the mountain alive. It's important to understand the history of Mount Everest and the activity on the mountain that led to the conditions for the 1996 disaster. Everest has been a subject of fascination for Western mountaineers ever since it was first measured as the highest mountain in the world, all the way back in 1852. The Great Trigonometric Survey of India was a British colonial project that spent nearly five decades working to map the topography of India. As their name might imply, the survey used mathematics and measurements drawn from a distance to determine the height and range of various mountains. In 1852, Andrew Waugh, the then president of the survey, realized that Peak 15, the unnamed mountain that existed outside of British territory on the Tibetan-Nepali border, was in fact over 8,000 meters tall and was thus the largest peak on record. It was so tall that Wa and his men were able to calculate its height from another country. Wa reported his findings to the Royal Geographical Society in London and proposed that the mountain be named in honor of the previous head of the trigonometric survey, George Everest. The Royal Geographical Society urged its members to conform to local names for any noteworthy landmarks. But Waugh argued that there was no common local name for Peak 15, and thus he was free to propose whatever name he wanted. Waugh was obviously biased, as there were in fact many local names for the mountain. The Tibetan name for it, Chamalungma, means Mother of the World, and the Nepalis called the mountain Sagarmatha, or Skyhead. But since the Nepalis and the Tibetans were not in open communication with the British, Wa was able to claim ignorance. In reality, the colonialist mindset likely led Wa and his colleagues to push for a British, Western-sounding name over a more traditional South Asian name. 
Ironically, George Everest himself was opposed to having the mountain named after him. He didn't like that his name wasn't pronounceable in Hindi, and thus naming the mountain Everest was, in a way, taking the mountain away from its own people. However, taking things away from their various colonies was something the British excelled at in this time period. Waugh and his fellows at the Royal Geographical Society felt that they had more of a right to Everest than the actual people who had lived in the shadow of the mountain for their entire lives. These men thought that Everest was something to be claimed, rather than a marvel of nature to be feared and respected. This attitude was indicative of a lot of the culture that would surround Everest in the century and a half to follow, and it was this attitude that would end up getting a lot of people killed. For over 30 years, Everest was not considered as a viable climbing destination. Waugh and his colleagues were only interested in calculating the mountain's height, not actually attempting a summit. But in 1885, Clinton Dent made the bold proclamation that it may actually be possible to reach Everest's summit. Dent was the president of Great Britain's Alpine Club, and his words carried significant weight. Mountaineers across the country began to consider the logistics of actually climbing Everest. Dent was quoted as saying, I do not for a moment say that it would be wise to ascend Mount Everest, but I believe most firmly that it is humanly possible to do so. And further, I feel sure that even in our own time, perhaps, the truth of these views will receive material corroboration. His words struck a chord in the hearts of his adventuring countrymen. He would particularly affect one George Mallory, an English mountaineer who made it his mission to reach Everest summit or die trying. Next, Everest claims its first victims. Now back to the story. In the early 20th century, English mountaineers had determined that Mount Everest, located on the Tibetan-Nepali border, was the tallest mountain in the known world. And they had begun to consider the possibility that reaching the top was possible. Everest was one of the few remaining untouched places in the world, the last bastion for a true explorer. The world was becoming more globalized. The rise of industrialization and the slow decline of colonialism created a sense that there was nothing new to discover under the sun. Men looking to make a name for themselves could no longer discover new countries or conquer new territories for Britain. So their attention turned to performing feats that had never been done before. Among these was the summoning of Everest. But in order to climb the mountain, these mountaineers first had to reach its base. And that was a political issue. Tibet was hostile to foreigners, and its borders were closed to outsiders for the first two decades of the 20th century. However, by 1920, the growing influences of the newly formed Republic of China and British India forced Tibet to begin to accept foreign travelers. The Tibetan government officially opened their side of Mount Everest to British explorers in 1921. For the first time since the discovery of Everest, British climbers suddenly had a new path in. 
In 1921, the Royal Geographical Society mounted the first ever British Everest reconnaissance expedition. The climbers would travel through Tibet to the base of the mountain, study the geography to see if a climb was even feasible, and depending on their findings, attempt to climb the mountain. The lead climber on this expedition was 34-year-old George Mallory. Mallory's exploits and his mysterious fate would come to define everything about the grandeur of Everest and the deadly consequences of underestimating it. Mallory was actually the first Brit to step foot on the base of Everest. He made it his mission to become the first person to reach the top of the mountain. And he actually came close. The men of the 1921 expedition reached a height of 20,000 feet, over two-thirds of the way to the top. However, as they approached the snow line, the part of the mountain where the winds are so strong that snow can't stick to the rock, they found themselves ill-prepared for the extreme conditions. They resolved to return home and come back later, better prepared. They held to that goal, returning in 1922 with the intent to reach the top. Mallory was present once again, and one of his fellow climbers, George Finch, made use of a startling new invention, bottled oxygen. The group had learned by now how the thinner atmosphere at the top of Everest affected their bodies, and the bottled oxygen would help them breathe during their long period in the death zone. During the 1922 attempt, Finch became the first man to climb past an altitude of 8,000 meters. Another record would be broken on this trip, but it wouldn't be a positive one. Mallory wanted to find the easiest route up the mountain, and to that end, he chose to forego the safer, slower routes. He tried to lead the expedition up the North Coal, a ridge formed by glaciers on the Tibetan side of the mountain. What they failed to consider is that no one had ever been on this part of the mountain before. Mallory and his team didn't take the time to move slowly and check that the ice was stable. The glacial ice strained under the weight of the full group of people. This disturbance started off a chain reaction. Mallory and his team had no time to react as their weight cracked the ice and sent the whole north side into an avalanche. Seven Sherpas were killed by the falling snow and ice. These were the first ever climbing deaths reported on Mount Everest. They would not be the last. Even though he was blamed for the disaster, Mallory returned to England and began gearing up for a third attempt at climbing Everest. He didn't care that seven people had died. That was the risk of pursuing greatness. In an interview with a newspaper, George Mallory gave perhaps the most defining quote in all of climbing culture. When asked why he wanted to climb Everest, he simply responded, because it's there. Ironically, if the society had been more hesitant about letting Mallory make another run at Everest, they may have saved his life. Mallory led a new group back to Everest in 1924, once again leading the team up the North Coal. This time, they moved slower, hoping to prevent any further avalanches. On June 8, 1924, 
Mallory and his fellow climber, Andrew Irvine, set out from their camp, which sat at 7,000 meters, just under 2,000 meters shy of the summit. It was bright enough early in the day that the other men on the expedition could watch Mallory and Irvine from camp. But as we've said, the conditions on Everest can change at the drop of a hat. As one of the climbers in the crew, Noel O'Dell, later reported, one minute he could see the two men further up the mountain. Then, all of a sudden, the summit became engulfed in a cloud bank. They could no longer see Mallory or Irvine. They would never see them again. When the weather cleared up, the men in camp waited and waited. Some search parties were sent out, but without a clear idea of where to even begin looking, there wasn't much to be done. After three days of waiting, on June 11th, the rest of the party considered Mallory and Irvine to be lost, and they set off back down the mountain. Climbing Everest became something of a complicated matter after that. Again, colonial bias was evident. The Royal Geographical Society had no problem funding another expedition, even after the first one had resulted in the deaths of several Sherpas. But now, Englishmen were missing and presumed dead on the mountain. Furthermore, Tibetan authorities were putting their feet down. The country's government blamed England for the death of the Sherpas in the 1922 expedition. In the interest of preventing further deaths, the Tibetan government refused to allow any more expeditions to the mountain until the 1930s. For a time, it seemed that George Mallory's dream of reaching the top of Everest had died along with him. International politics and the general difficulty of the climb kept any noteworthy expeditions away from Everest for decades. In 1950, despite the Tibetans' best efforts, the People's Republic of China assumed control of the region and permanently closed off the country's borders to foreigners. For a brief period of time, it seemed that Everest was once again isolated from foreign climbers, just as it had been in the 19th century. But around that same time, India began to establish a military presence in Nepal on the south side of Everest to counter China's control of Tibet to the north. Nepal had previously been closed to foreigners. Prospective climbers had never been allowed to climb Everest from the southern side. When Nepal's borders were opened, climbers suddenly had access to a whole new route up the mountain. Naturally, a number of British adventurers jumped at the opportunity. Despite the controversial question of whether Mallory and Irvine had made it to the top of the mountain, there was still a record to be broken for summoning Everest and then returning alive. Though he had been missing and presumed dead for nearly 30 years, Mallory's immortal words rang on in the mind of every prospective climber. They would attempt to summit Everest simply because it was there. In 1952, a Sherpa named Tenzing Norgay set a record by climbing over 28,200 feet up Everest from the Nepali side. The next year, Tenzing was hired to assist a British expedition. This time, he beat his record and make history. 
On May 29, 1953, Tenzing partnered with Edmund Hillary, a New Zealander, and set out from their expedition's camp at 27,900 feet. They were going for the top. The last stretch of the journey to Everest Summit is also the most dangerous. The summit lies just above a narrow, nearly vertical rock face. The difficulty in climbing this ridge is compounded by the low oxygen and the likely exhaustion of any climber who would have reached that point. Proper rope usage is key here. Without something stable to hold on to, it's too easy for a climber to make one wrong step and fall to their death. But after 10 hours of slowly climbing, crawling, and trekking along the ridge and up the rock face, Hillary and Tenzing reached the top. They were the first men ever confirmed to summit Mount Everest. The rock face they climbed to reach the top was christened the Hillary Step. There was, naturally, much fanfare regarding this successful ascent. Summiting Mount Everest was possible. But this did not put an end to climbers trying to set records on the mountain. Youngest climber, oldest climber, first fill-in-the-blank climber. Everest was the ultimate challenge of man versus nature. These climbers wanted to prove themselves superior. But over the next few decades, nature would prove itself dominant time and time again. As the 20th century started to come to a close, the mountain developed a tourism problem. It was one thing when a small British group tried to climb the mountain. It was another thing entirely when dozens or even hundreds of tourists began traveling to Nepal in the hopes of immortalizing themselves atop the mountain's peak. One thing that became immediately clear was that the deadly, turbulent weather made Everest inaccessible for most of the calendar year. It's essentially impossible to summit Everest in the winter. The average temperature is lower than negative 36 degrees Celsius. It's not possible for someone to stay for that long in that kind of cold without risking severe frostbite and hypothermia. The summer is actually not much safer. In South Asia, June through September is monsoon season. This is the time of year when sudden changes in wind can bring about unexpected, intense rainstorms. On Everest, this creates an unpredictable weather pattern. Winds can shift and push storms onto the mountain at any moment, trapping climbers in a blizzard. By the 1970s, it was generally known that the ideal window for climbing Everest was a brief period between April and May. This window became Everest's climbing season. As climbers began to better understand Mount Everest and the means with which to reach its peak, summit attempts steadily rose through the 1970s and 1980s. Professional climbers began hiring themselves out as guides to lead amateurs up the mountain. As a result, Everest became more and more of a tourist destination. Climbing the mountain became a much easier endeavor when you could afford to pay an experienced mountaineer to get you to the top. In the 1980s, a 55-year-old man named Dick Bass reached the summit, with some significant help from a younger climber named David Brashears. 
The ensuing media coverage focused on Bass's age, not the assistance he'd been given. Bass's successful summit further encouraged the idea that Everest was a totally attainable goal for anyone, regardless of age, provided they were somewhat fit. To the public, the challenge of Everest was no longer the arduous climb, extreme cold, or the high altitude. Rather, the challenge was affordability and time. It became something of a bucket list destination for wealthy retirees. As the 1980s transitioned into the 1990s, there was a noticeable increase in climbers that were 45 or older. Naturally, with demand came supply, and adventure organizations began establishing themselves around Everest. For a mere five-figure payment, you could take part in your own guided adventure to the top. Some of these organizations would take on clients who didn't have any prior experience in the kinds of conditions found on Everest. From the first day that Westerners became aware of Mount Everest, all the way back in 1852, they had erroneously tried to claim it. Even the name was a British invention that disregarded the names that the Tibetans and the Nepalese had given the mountain. This was indicative of an attitude that Everest was something that could be controlled or overcome by sheer will. But Everest cannot be claimed. It is not a tourist attraction. It is a rocky, icy behemoth that offers death at every turn. As more and more people crowded the mountain, they ran the risk of slowing the pace, clogging the trails, and making it more difficult to get to safety if the weather made a turn for the worse. The stage was set for disaster. All it would take was one bad day. And that day finally came on May 10th, 1996. Next, the journey to Everest Summit begins. For some, it will end in death. Now, back to the story. By 1996, Mount Everest had been summited hundreds of times. Over a hundred people had perished in their attempts, but that didn't stop mountaineers of all ages and experience levels from returning to the mountain every season to try and reach the tallest point on earth. A number of organizations had been established that employed Sherpas and experienced climbers to guide aspirant summiters to the top and back. Many of these organizations were for-profit ventures. As more people proved willing to pay their five-figure fees, more companies were formed to account for demand. And thus, Everest started to develop a problem with overcrowding. In 1996, a typical ascent of Mount Everest went something like this. The climb officially begins at base camp which is located at an elevation of just under 18,000 feet. Prior to this, a prospective climber may spend anywhere from a few days to a whole week in the nearby town of Kathmandu, buying supplies and preparing for their journey. From the base camp, you move through the Kumbu Icefall, a crevice-laden glacier that requires extensive use of ladders and ropes to get across. The ice here is full of crevices and not always stable. One wrong step can send you tumbling dozens or even hundreds of feet to your death. 
From the icefall, you reach the first of two camps that are located at around 20,000 feet elevation. They serve as areas where climbers can rest and acclimatize. From Camp 2, you climb a wall of sheer ice known as the Lhotse face using fixed ropes. You continue on across a massive rock buttress to Camp 3, located at 24,500 feet. Finally, you move into Camp 4, which is just inside the death zone. This is the part of Everest where there is officially too little oxygen in the atmosphere to survive for an extended period of time. You are 3,000 feet below the highest point on the planet. The final ascent requires pinpoint timing, but must also account for the general slow movement of the climbers as they struggle to make use of the limited oxygen in the air. You depart Camp 4 in the middle of the night, already sore, worn out, and nearly delirious from the lack of oxygen. Your brain isn't operating at full capacity, your judgment is impaired, and your motor functions are reduced. You slog on up the South Coal along the narrow ridge known as the Balcony to the South Summit, and finally, the Hillary Step. When you finally reach the top, you hardly have any time to celebrate before turning around. A natural disaster could occur at any moment in the form of a blizzard or an avalanche or a thunderstorm. You have to get back to camp before nightfall, lest you be stranded on the mountain during a freezing night. In order to ensure you have enough time to safely make it back down, general wisdom dictates that you have to reach the summit by 2 p.m. If you haven't made it to the top by that time, you're better off turning back. The climb from base camp to the summit can actually be done in just a few days. The current record for the climb is just over 10 hours. It truly was never a matter of distance. It's a matter of acclimatization, the vital part of a successful climb. Climbers will often spend a month or longer on the mountain, completing multiple trips between the various camps in order to prepare their bodies for the final trek through the death zone. All of these processes were developed over the years as professional climbers made repeat trips to the summit. They created a system that was meant to curb the deadly conditions of Everest and make it feasible to reach the top and return alive. But the downside of these methods was that mankind began to think it had tamed Everest. As long as you trusted your guide and were fit enough, you'd make it to the top. This arrogance in the face of nature has led many climbers to their deaths. These are the extreme conditions that have faced Everest climbers for nearly a century. And they are the chaotic obstacles that prove to be the undoing of the ill-fated 1996 expedition. As we've said, by 1996, Mount Everest had a tourism problem. Overeager climbers, supported by for-profit climbing organizations, had created an issue of serious overcrowding. From that narrow window of April to May, hundreds of people attempted to ascend the summit. Overcrowding was a constant risk, especially at certain ridges and chasms where only one person could safely cross at a time. 
there was a serious risk of bottlenecking as crowds of climbers waited around for their turn. It's dangerous to be stationary in Everest's death zone. Just standing still and breathing can sap your energy because of the lack of oxygen. Being stuck in a bottleneck can waste valuable time. It can be even worse if you're not in pristine physical condition. And this has been the case with a number of Everest climbers over the past few decades. The climb has become something of a rich man's sport due to higher permit costs, which ironically were put in place by the Nepali government in order to curb the overcrowding problem. By 1996, an Everest trip with a company like Adventure Consultants could run you upwards of $65,000. So the issue of affordability meant that any given climbing group might be filled more with wealthy hobbyists than experienced climbers. And while the people present for the 1996 disasters weren't necessarily amateurs, there were some questions of capability throughout the group. One thing to note here, the use of oxygen was and continues to be a matter of controversy among Everest climbers. Common sense may naturally assert that supplemental oxygen is a vital part of staying safe on the mountain and ensuring that climbers are able to breathe. But there are dissenters who assert that supplemental oxygen could actually act as a safety deterrent. Recall that Scott Fisher's claim to fame was that he had summited Everest without oxygen in 1994. Fisher was not the only man to have achieved this. In fact, by 1996, over 60 climbers had done the same since 1978. The fact that it could be done stood as an argument for why it should be done. The argument was that if you couldn't summit Everest without oxygen, you probably had no business making the attempt in the first place. And after the 1996 disaster, this debate would only rage on. In addition to adventure consultants and mountain madness, there was a Taiwanese expedition of five that were on the mountain at the same time. These groups had spent the end of March and all of April making trips up and down between the various camps and acclimatizing as best they could in preparation for the final assault on the summit. The Adventure Consultants Group departed at 4.30 a.m. on May 6th for their four-day trek to the top of the mountain. They reached Camp 2 before nightfall and spent the next day resting, building up strength for the challenging summit ahead. They departed Camp 2 on May 8th to make their way up into the death zone. John Krakauer, who would later write a book about the Everest disaster, made note of two potentially alarming things about his fellow climbers. The first issue was with Doug Hansen, one of the climbers with Adventure Consultants, who had already started to struggle on the day treks in between the camps. He wasn't sleeping, he was having trouble breathing. It's unclear whether anyone raised the idea to him that he might turn back. Doug had gotten so close to the top of Everest in 1995, only 300 feet from the summit. Though he was fit, he was 46, and he seemed to know that this trip was his final chance to reach the top. The other climbers wanted to respect that. Scott Fisher was also causing concern. 
Though he was among the most experienced climbers on the mountain, he had been exerting much more energy than his clients or the other guides. Mountain Madness, under Fisher's direction, encouraged its climbers to branch out on their own to attempt climbs and acclimatize. This free spirit attitude had backfired over the previous few weeks as clients kept falling into trouble on the mountain and Fisher had to continually climb out to help them. By May 9th, Fisher had likely covered more vertical distance than anyone else in the group, and it was starting to show. The first death occurred that same day. Chen Yunnan, one of the members of the Taiwanese tour group, stepped out of his tent early in the morning to relieve himself. Thinking that he would only be outside for a few seconds, Yunnan didn't fasten on his spiked boots before exiting his tent. He slipped on the ice and fell more than 70 feet into a crevice. His team managed to use ropes to pull him out. Chen was shaken and bruised pretty badly, but he had no broken bones or injuries that appeared to be life-threatening. His team mobilized to get him back to base camp. For a few hours after the fall, everyone was optimistic that Chen was going to be okay. As the day went on, though, Chen found himself more and more disoriented. He was having trouble breathing. It's likely that in the fall, Chen had sustained severe internal injuries. He collapsed as the team was helping him move down the mountain. Tragically, Chen died soon after. He was the first death on the mountain that season, but he wouldn't be the last. The Adventure Consultants team reached Camp 4 on May 9th. Doug Hansen was notably slower. It's unclear, but it seems that one of the Sherpas urged him to head back down before the ascent to the top. But Doug wasn't going anywhere. He knew this was likely his last chance to see the summit. He wasn't turning back, not after he'd gotten so close last time. Doug Hansen wanted to push himself beyond his limits. In the end, that determination would cost him his life. The climbers of Adventure Consultants and Mountain Madness went to sleep on the night of May 9th, assuming that their plan was in place. Normally, when a climbing group is gearing up for a summit push, Sherpas are sent ahead to set fixed ropes for climbers to use to move along the more hazardous ridges. Setting these ropes in advance saves precious time and prevents bottlenecking. Rob Hall and Scott Fisher both discussed the plan to send Sherpas out at 10.30 p.m., about 90 minutes before the rest of the group. Then, just after midnight struck on May 10th, 1996, the full group set out from Camp 4. They all assumed they'd be making memories that they'd hold dear for the rest of their lives. The clear sky and low winds seemed like a sign that they would have good weather during their 14-hour trek to the summit. But Everest and nature are both fickle, and good weather never lasts for very long when you're at an altitude of 28,000 feet. Rob Hall knew that the longer they stayed in the death zone, the more they risked getting caught in a sudden, unexpected storm. For safety's sake, 
Hall had implemented a cutoff time of 2 p.m. Anyone not at the summit by then would have to turn back in order to make it back to camp before nightfall. That left them about 14 hours to reach the summit. It seemed doable. But as the sun rose and the group reached the narrow ridge known as the balcony, Hall and his climbers realized they had a problem. The Sherpas hadn't actually set the fixed lines. The climbers were going to have to set the ropes themselves. Hall, his guides, and the rest of the climbers had to make a choice. Should they take the time to set the lines and continue their push, even though doing so all but guaranteed they'd miss their cutoff time? Or should they turn back and try again the next day? The sky was still clear. The light wind whispered the snow about along the crest of the balcony. It was almost like the mountain itself was beckoning them. Hall made his decision. They would set the lines and continue to the top. That decision would cost several lives, including his own. As the hours passed and the cutoff time came and went, the climbers grew weaker and weaker. Their brains were slowly starving for oxygen. Those that reached the top looked out over the horizon from the highest point on Earth. They saw dark clouds forming in the distance. The storm was already coming. Within a matter of hours, the summit would be engulfed in icy winds and deadly freezing temperatures. For the climbers who would soon be trapped on the mountain, all they could do was wait out the disaster and pray that they survived. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. Next week, we'll follow the plight of the climbers over May 10th and 11th, 1996. You can find more episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Natural Disasters for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.